When I use the phrase cosmic facts, the reader is asked not to assume too rigid a meaning for the word facts. What is considered factual today is tomorrow recognized as capable of further refinement. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in Devon, Matthew and George Russell. Oh yeah, baby Shapley. Nice. <laughs> so yeah, this podcast is brought to you by Matthew Russell and his son, George Russell. Hello, George. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Dad. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you very much. Yes. I was the same as I was this morning when we had breakfast. Yeah. Uh, nice. Um, of course, George, people will be familiar with George because he was the the young voice at the beginning of the podcast until recently. But now, of course, his voice is broken, so he's now a deep speaking teenager. I know sad times. George, what do you know about uh, Harlow Shapley? Then it's his birthday today. Well, it would have been his birthday. Born in eighteen eighty five, died in nineteen seventy two. Birthday today, November the second, from Nashville. What do you know about him? Yeah, he's an American astronomer, scientist, and political activist, head of the Harvard College Observatory. Oh, yeah, good. Yes, that that seems to be a very, very uh, deep knowledge there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, Shapley, born on a farm in Nashville, dropped out of school, went to study journalism. Isn't that weird? He went to study journalism, but... Um, uh, they hadn't started the course when he got to the school, so he had to do something else. Didn't like the sound of archaeology because he didn't know how to pronounce it, so he chose astronomy, <laughs> apparently. And, uh, yes, he managed to get to Princeton University where he worked with none other than another Russell, Henry Norris Russell. What? Yeah. And, <laughs> and worked on CFID variables. So his 1940... 1914 PhD thesis on the orbits of 90 eclipsing binaries virtually created a whole branch of astronomy. And he didn't even want to do astronomy. And he didn't even want to do astronomy. He didn't even really know what it was. He wanted to do journalism. Um, but he had a big argument with uh, a lot of the astronomers of the day. Were these weird nebulas, were they uh, inside the Milky Way or outside of the Milky Way? And Hubble was saying, no, these things, are, these things are outside of the Milky Way. The universe is so much bigger than we think. And eventually, Shapley had to admit he was wrong, uh, which is, I guess, what that quote is all about, how, how what you think is right could be proved wrong and if you're a good scientist as soon as you're given those sort of facts yeah really you should celebrate as a scientist for being proven wrong because you know it's just it's just learning more that's right that's right yeah 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 um <laughs> in uh, uh in 1953 though this is my favorite he proposed the liquid water belt theory do you know what that became known as later on what what it's colloquially known as i've uh, no idea no you've no idea what do you reckon? The liquid water belt? Um, yeah, I don't oh, know. Oh, come on. <laughs> the habitable zone. Oh. oh. The Goldilocks zone. Yeah, where, where water can be uh, liquid. But, you know, you said he was a political activist. He put the S in UNESCO. You could write a rap song about Shapley. <laughs> <laughs> United Nations Education, Scientific and Cultural Organization. So, yes, he um, made sure that the S was in there. Good, huh? 
put the S in UNESCO. Uh, I, I think we better cover some a little bit of rocket news because there was there was absolutely tons this week. Yeah, lots of rocket news. There's there's Osiris Rex. Do you know what Osiris Rex did this week? Got some samples. Got some samples off Bennu. It was overloaded, but managed to get it into the container. So there was great footage of it going into the And they didn't have to do the uh, second leap to uh, a separate uh, place to get more. They got it all in one. They got got more than it all in one. Uh, Went better than expected. Rocket Labs flew. uh, SpaceX flew their 100th launch. Yeah, I saw that. They posted a YouTube video of all 100 launches. Yeah, but how many Falcon 9 boosters have launched? Because obviously it's not 100 because they're reusable. I wonder how many... are, have been used. Yeah. It's probably less than, well, obviously less than 100. But. <laughs> yeah, but but I don't know what that number is. And I posted it on Twitter and no one replied. So please, someone, tell me how many it is because I, I, it's not that I can't be bothered. I just don't have time to, to sort of <laughs> sift through them <laughs> uh, at the moment. Um, yes, so, yeah, it's it's been a busy, a busy, busy week. The, the BE-4 rocket engine has moved into production because they've sorted out some problems. Uh, you've had what's space, the BE4? The BE4 is the uh, Blue Origins uh, engine that's going to be used on Tori Bruno's uh, Vulcan rocket. Nice. Yeah. Is that what is that the uh, second gen rocket engine then for? Basically, yeah. The uh, uh, United Launch Alliance have met, cut a deal with Amazon. Blue Origin. Blue yeah. Origin. Yeah. Yeah. Bought the BE4 rocket engine, so it'll be actually the first piece of serious commercial hardware. Bezos has managed yeah so it's a, it's a big Bezos. deal it's a it's a big which is good news because at least it means that um elon musk has got a competitor at last uh talking of competitors ariane 6 so do you know what the news is for that one uh it's going going to be competed with ariane 7 is that the <laughs> no it's going ariane 6 is going to be delayed until 2022 it was supposed to fly in uh 2020 but then was delayed, and it's been delayed again because of COVID and the fact that rockets are really, really hard. No rockets. Really? Have, yeah, rockets have never... No rocket being developed has it's ever been... It's not brain been, surgery, though. It's not brain surgery, but nothing's ever been delivered on time. Technical difficulties, they need a few hundred million more euros to finish the thing off, so, so the uh, taxpayers are going to have to put their hand in the pocket to the tune of 230 million euros. Kind of like fusion power. It's always 30 always years ahead. Always a few years away. I don't think Ariane 6 is quite as 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 bad as fusion power. You know, I think that's a little unfair. <laughs> <laughs> Going to Mars is a bit like fusion power though. Going to Mars is a bit like fusion power. We were supposed to already have colonized the entire of the solar system yeah, let's, by now. Let's 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 not let's not think about the dreams of the 70s and 80s. You weren't even there, man. Let's get on with the, the reason why George is here. George was desperate to do the Rocket Fallacy Special. Yeah, Rocket Fallacies. Or as I like to say, the Rocket Fallacy Special. What do you think? So, George, what's the first one on the list? The first one on the list is the Rocket Pendulum Fallacy. The Rocket Pendulum Fallacy. Do you know what? Until you told me about this, I hadn't really thought about it. And then when you told me about it, I thought, oh, that, that sounds right. So, yes. You're wrong. I know. I know I'm wrong. And then, uh, but uh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. So Robert Goddard 
who essentially is the granddaddy yeah. of rockets. He invented liquid fuel rockets. He's yeah. the first first inventor of the liquid fuel rockets. Yeah, he's he's von Braun, Sergei Korolovs, Vikram Saraban, Konstantin Solkovsky's kind of contemporary. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, he was the first person to fly a rocket, but he thought... Liquid fuel rocket. Liquid fuel rocket. The Chinese at first. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if we go back, we can go back hundreds yeah. of years to, to to just rocket rockets. The first attempt to go to the moon, which was strapping loads of uh, fireworks to a chair and then <laughs> had one of the uh, major Chinese leaders uh, sit on it. And I don't, I don't know where, whether or not it worked, but... <laughs> I don't think it worked. I don't think he got to the moon. <laughs> um... But here's his his thoughts. So how do you keep the rocket pointing upwards? Obviously, he just wants to fire this liquid rocket and he wants it going upwards, but he didn't have any means of control. So in Goddard's head, he thought that the weight of gravity would pull a dangling rocket below it to act like a pendulum. So if you put the rocket at the top... The engine at the top. If you put the rocket engine at the top, yeah, and had the fuel tanks dangling underneath... It would act like a pendulum, so the moment it sort of swung one way, the, 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 the weight of the fuel tank would pull it back in a straight line, which kind of, in your head, is really intuitive, isn't no, it? In your head, you're thinking of actual pendulums that are attached to something yeah. that always swing down. In fact, I noticed, you, you, that, you know that YouTuber that you watch who's building himself an Iron Man suit? Yeah, he also made the fallacy. He, he keeps making it. He keeps accidentally making yeah, and the he's same fallacy. On it even, as well. even though people keep pointing it yeah, out. Yeah, the, the Hacksmith make it real Iron Man. He's, he wants to have the engines at the top of the body. Because he, he thinks. Because yeah, it will think it will out of control. But, you know, you're, if, you st if you've ever stood up before. You know that it's you can support your body <laughs> by having something on the bottom. Uh, bottom with, that, yeah, that supports the thing it. that accelerating you. Yeah, hitting at your feet because yeah. the floor is accelerating. Yeah, the, well, the floor is accelerating you. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're experiencing a force, which we'll, as, we'll get onto later because that's actually a really interesting point about general relativity. Yeah, yeah relativity is it, in the same way if you're on a rocket and and it's traveling at nine point eight meters a second squared acceleration. You'll feel like there's gravity, right? Mm -hmm. The acceleration is actually upwards. Same with the floor. The floor is actually accelerating upwards. Yeah, but I guess in Goddard's head, he's thinking like, what's easier, to pull a broomstick up or to balance it on the palm of your hand and try and push it up? Yeah. And obviously in your head, you think obviously it's easier to pull it up because the broomstick is And that is, is true self... for a broom, but that's because you're connected to you're, the ground. Because you're connected to the ground. So what happened? Goddard built his first liquid-fueled rocket. It managed to go 41 feet. Uh, veered uh, off to the left yeah, completely, very quickly. <laughs> very, very quickly veered off into Aunt Elfie's cabbage field, uh, a distance shorter than the Apollo launch vehicle, the Saturn V, that uh, only 40 years later would carry men to the moon. So it, like from, from that first liquid fuel, and it's the direct descendant, you know, the, the Saturn V is the direct descendant of Goddard's first liquid-propelled rocket. All liquid fuel rockets are yeah. the direct yeah, descendant. Yeah, exactly. So it's, but in 40 years' time, they'd realised the, uh, the fallacy. Um, so essentially what, what is going on, and, and it's like you said, that it, you're attached to the floor. So essentially gravity is a universal, if fictitious, yeah. force. I mean, I guess it comes from the... the the age-old fallacy, which is that heavier objects fall a lot faster than light ones, is just not true. <laughs> like the force is the same universally. Yeah, it's 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 because 
it's I think it's to do with the kind of frame of reference you in. Yeah. Think about because um, because it looks like a pendulum. Yeah. It isn't a pendulum. So what's actually happening is as the as the rocket starts tilting over, unlike a pendulum, because the pendulum is attached to a wall that's attached to the floor, yeah. the, the Newton's reactionary force is always pointing away from yeah. gravity. So the it's floor is accelerating up. the yeah. top upwards. So it's always pushing the pivot point up, whereas the moment that you detach the system from the floor, i.e. a rocket, it's now far, that the force is going in the direction that the rocket is. I mean, here's one way to think of it. Imagine you have your rocket that's stationary and the floor is accelerating towards you at 9.8 meters a second. No matter what angle you're at, it's not like because the floor's moving towards you, you <laughs> yeah. somehow reorient yourself. Yeah. But here's the thing. When you told me this, that in my head I thought, well... If you if you have it so that the rocket engine at the top pivots and the thing can freely move, then then you've still got that. Then the rocket is still pointing upwards. But of but course, that isn't it, it's not true because to make the rocket always point up, the rocket engine always yeah. point up, means that you have to have some form of control. Yeah, which was the whole purpose of like, the pendulum. You may as well just had fins at the bottom. <laughs> and, and of course, once you've got once you've put the thing, the control at the top, you think. Well, hang on a second. It's really stupid to have the fuel tanks under the flamey bit. After all, it is yeah. a massive load of fuel. Under I mean, the you're, you're bit. basically stop. It's like it's like blowing into your own sail <laughs> to try and to try and move a boat. You know, it, well, it's not quite the same as that. Yeah, in your head, intuitively, you think that the the rocket engine is going to be pointing up, but that was the whole point of the pendulum system. Yeah, and because it's not you, you may as well have the engine on the bottom now. Which of course is what you do. Yeah. But here's the other thing. There are reasons to have your engines at the top, though. For example, one of the concept landers of, I believe it's NASA, has the engines at the top, but it isn't for stability. It's for stopping craters from well, being well, made on the well, surface. Well, yeah, but yeah, exactly. Well, that, well, that's actually what's going to be happening with um, Starship, of course, when it lands on, yeah. on the moon. It's, it, it can't really do it <laughs> with its big retro rockets. So that there's a lot to be sort of, sort of said about that. But of course, Apollo does have Saturn V does have a a launch vehicle on board the launch escape tower that has its rocket engines at the top. And it's because you can't put them on the because bottom you obviously because you can't it's put them on the attached bottom. to yeah. a rocket. So it has. So it's like a tractor that pulls you off. But the nightmare with that is it's so unstable. They had to put depleted uranium in the top to move the center. Yeah. Uh, move the center of uh, um, gravity because of the cone shape of the capsule. Anyway, yeah. you do have a bit of center of lift that's behind the center yeah. of mass. But but yeah, but that, but you need that center. Yeah. You need tons of weight at the tip. To, I mean, for to any, give you some turning yeah. pivot. The motion. real way to make a rocket stable, or even a plane, or anything, is to have the center of mass really far ahead of the center of lift. Yeah, it's 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 an amazingly common mistake, and and I've seen it with people with drones yeah. dangling their batteries underneath the drone and things like that, so to thinking that it gives you extra stability, which of course it doesn't. So yeah, it's it's that's really really interesting. Um, I, I it's not something I'd really thought about before, but now. Thanks, yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for flagging that one up for me. The pendulum rocket fallacy. Genius. Well done, George. Right, what's the next one? What's the next one on the... We got... So, imagine you're in orbit, in Earth orbit, and you want to go to Earth. Which way do you point? Most people would say, well, obviously, you just point towards the Earth and then turn on your engine. But that isn't true. In fact, that often will make you go higher at certain points in your orbit. Yeah, this this one is brilliant. And and I think there's a... The really good example is, yeah, if you're on the International Space Station 
and you fire a rocket at Earth, what happens? And it's and and it's really weird. Yeah, because- past a certain threshold. Uh, I mean, before a certain threshold, your the other side of your orbit actually goes higher yeah. because you're you're still in orbit. It's just your you've also had a slight acceleration yeah, as well. In fact, all you've actually done is made your orbit more elliptical. Yeah, because yes, you're you're firing down, but once that firing's over, that velocity in in orbit because you're no longer rotating. Because actually, what's interesting is the International Space Station is slowly rotating so that it's always in the right orientation with the Earth. So the bottom's always pointing at the Earth, like the cupola is always pointing yeah. down. So you can see. Let me get that view. You know? But 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 to do that, obviously, it has to rotate ever so slowly because as it as it goes yeah. around. But when you fire something off, is that with reaction wheels or RCS? Uh, do you, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. Because you must have a, you know, a hellish, you know, lots yeah. of, lots of Well, I guess it's, no, I that. guess, yeah, but I guess it's just, once it starts rotating. That is it, true. It does have, have persistent rotation. Yeah, persistent because no, rotation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I don't know what causes the rotation. But you need a mod to, to, to enable that in Kerbal Space Program. Oh, there we go. Um, but yes, if you think about the rocket that's just blasted off from the International Space Station, because it's now in orbit, but it but itself isn't hasn't picked up the rotation of the International Space Station. It that 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 downward what was a downward uh, velocity by the time it's gone round a quarter of an orbit is now a velocity that's making it go higher. And so by the time it comes round half an orbit, it's gone a lot higher than it was before, and it's gone in front of you. So it's actually it's actually half spa- an orbit as well. Yeah, so half an, half an orbit. So by the time you've by the time the International Space Station has done a half orbit, if the Soyuz capsule had just blasted down, it would now be in front of it and much higher than it by the time it by the time you've got. Round of course, to the this half is past orbit. a certain threshold. Imagine you had like a really fast engine, like a warp drive or something. Oh yeah, you, you could get it down. down. You, you could get, get down. down. I mean, if you, but if this you, is the least efficient yeah, way of doing it. If you it. were blasting your rocket engine continuously and you were continually pointing your nose at the Earth, it would be a good way of getting in. However, it's wildly well, inefficient. Not good, just quick. No, quick, <laughs> but wildly inefficient. Yeah, and, the most efficient and way. And really dangerous, because presumably you then have to slow down yeah, that velocity. I mean, your re-entry you speed would be ridiculous. <laughs> well, your re-entry speed directly down would be ridiculous. Yeah, but that's... But actually, the- your re-entry speed... So, no, the sideways would stay the same because oh, you're pointing yeah, yeah, down. Yeah, it'd be a disaster. It, yeah, yeah would, it's just a total disaster. You need like so, mostly so, a blader. So how do you do it? You're supposed to point retrograde as any Kerbal Space okay, Program Okay, what player. does retrograde mean first? Retrograde is just the opposite direction to the direction that you're moving, mm-hmm. which is prograde, of course. Okay, yeah. And so, what, so you blast your engines in retrograde. So this is where they got it right on the expanse, isn't it? So the expanse. I've does never this seen all, yeah, the, expanse. the expanse. The expanse is quite good with this sort of thing mm. of showing all the rockets doing this retrograde uh, propulsion, where they're sort of going somewhere and they turn around. To but you're supposed to do it at your highest point in orbit to get your lowest point down, because that's the point that's already lowest. So you may as well put all the energy into getting that lower. Oh, okay. But so you you, you do it in you do it in retrograde. Then what happens? Well, then the other side of your orbit goes down. To lower, and you want to get it not like on the surface, or at least for Earth, but you want to get your lowest point, which is the apogee, uh, to no, in... the lowest point is your perigee, yeah, yeah, perigee. You want to get that in the atmosphere, but not too shallow, shallowly in the atmosphere that you bounce they off, bounce off, yeah. yeah, do a Neil Armstrong, as I like to call it. He really he did that in the X 15, he did, yeah. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. But it, that wasn't a re-entry. That was just uh, going really well, fast. Well, it kind of was a re-entry. I suppose you're, like, constantly re-entering, except it's not really a re-entry because <laughs> no, you never not. leave space. No. I mean, Earth. Well, some X-15 flights leave space in the NASA sense of the yeah, word leaving space. Yeah, which is what? A, a complete circular orbit without uh, without re-entering or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You go down, you start to go down, but only a bit of your orbit goes down. But the really interesting and super counterintuitive thing about this is, is as you go down, your potential energy is lowering, right? But because your potential, your your overall energy must, yeah, you actually start to have more kinetic energy to make up for the fact that your potential energy has gone down. So you actually, even though you're you're slowed down one side, you sped up the other side because you've got that you've you've made you've uh, kind of brought up your potential energy by going to space in the first place. You've got that massive drop that you can take. So by firing your rockets backwards, you end up going faster. But only, but on average, you're slower. Yeah, on average, it it goes slower. But you you don't do the other half of the orbit. So you're just doing the part of the orbit, which is where you're faster. It's so, yeah, it's so good, isn't it? That one. Brilliant, yeah. Yeah, I I like that one. So yeah, orbital mechanics becomes complicated because you always have to think of the frame of reference that you're in. I actually think in some ways, general relativity is easier to think of it yeah, because um, of the way that it because of the way that you're following. Yeah, once you're in space, I think general relativity is actually pretty intuitive. It's just we're apes that have uh, grown up on Earth where we don't yeah. have to deal with orbital mechanics, you know. So, so it's is it the same if I want to go to the moon? Well, when you want to go to the moon and you're in Earth orbit, you don't actually point to just to Earth to the moon. In fact, I think it was in a Despicable Me where he wanted to go to the moon and he just from Earth pointed towards the moon. And just went, you know, but that's obviously not how it's yeah. how it's done in Apollo. They orbit the Earth first so that they can then increase their orbit in highly elliptical orbit that intersects uh, the the moon. field of influence of the moon in order so, to get an and orbit. that's is that so that's the Hohmann transfer, right? Yeah, I believe or so. Or the Hoffman transfer, as I've heard it called. But yeah, so that so yeah, you 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 basically uncircularize your orbit around Earth. And make it more elliptical, so that that ellipse intersects the with moon. where the moon will be. Where the moon, or will at least, be, at least yeah. where it's. I, for Apollo, they they had a crash course so that they could eject their third stage and make it crash on the moon to avoid space junk. But oftentimes, if you don't care about that, you can just make it so that your orbit intersects. Oftentimes, oftentimes, you can uh, just make your orbit intersect the field of influence of the moon. So here's a really good one. When is the best time to be burning your engines so that you so that you start to make your orbit elliptical? Obviously, the lowest point because it it's more efficiently going to be the opposite point in the orbit that increases. But the reason why it's more efficient, we we had a blinding argument didn't we we? Yesterday, uh, yesterday, is the reason why it's more efficient is the Oberth effect, which is which is phenomenal. I think it's the least intuitive thing I've heard, definitely. Yeah, so the Oberth effect is basically because at the lowest point in your orbit, the perigee in this case, yeah. and, and it's your periapsis. Well, it's always but because, the case by definition. But periapsis, well, no, because periapsis... Is the is the proper word for the lowest point of an orbit? Perigee is when it refers to the Earth. Perihelion is when it refers to oh, the I Sun. Didn't, I didn't actually know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So they've all got all the planets have got their own 
names. I, that's that's yeah. incredible. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's so, very niche as well. Yeah, you're, that's you're, pretty you're niche. You only use each word about once every <laughs> lifetime, maybe. So. Well, perihelion and perigee are obviously the ones yeah. that get used a lot. I've only heard perigee. Yeah. So we, but once you're at perigee, obviously you're going your fastest, right? You're you're going at your fastest velocity. You have your highest kinetic energy, and the fuel on board also has kinetic energy. And what's phenomenal, if you do the maths, you'll notice that your rocket you can use some not only the chemical uh, chemical energy from the fuel, but actually transfer some of that um, kinetic energy from the fuel to make it to, to give it more kinetic energy on the way out. And of course the counterintuitive thing thing there is you think that you've that you've gained some energy for nothing, which of course is you, you can never do. I right? mean, the most counterintuitive thing is thinking: how actually is the kinetic energy in the fuel just suddenly converting itself? Well, it, it, it's, the... it's what what I've kind of got to the bottom of that is the fact that the kinetic energy of the expelled fuel is lower than it would normally be. So, in actual fact, the kinetic energy of the of the expended fuel ends up being slightly less because of the the way that you're the, the direction and the velocity that you're burning it. So always it's better to burn your rocket engines at as the when, point. At, when you've got the most amount of kinetic energy. At the uh, periapsis. Yeah. Or so that, that on Earth. You, because yeah, because the, the the equations aren't quite linear. So, you, you, with but in the exchange between orbital energy, kinetic energy, and and well, the potential energy and the kinetic that's actually energy. slightly not true though, because your burn actually takes time. So what we want to do is half the time it takes for the burn to take, and then wait t yeah. minus. You want Whatever to be, that. yeah. It, you measure the length of your burn, and you and you want the the halfway point of your Except burn not to even, be at peri. It's not even that because your mass changes, so you want to get it slightly. <laughs> it, the math is probably oh, no. pretty hard on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Calculus is going to rear its head there, or everything. Uh, yeah, <laughs> general relativity. So, what about the sun? The sun. Yeah, getting to the sun. So we've talked about getting to the moon. But getting to the sun's an odd one, isn't it? Because, yeah. Because you actually have to re reach escape velocity in order to get a solar orbit. But a lot of people misuse escape velocity. They think escape velocity is merely getting into orbit, right? You've kind of escaped Earth gravity. Of course, you haven't. Yeah, not at all. In not fact. at all, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In fact, even Apollo astronauts uh, didn't escape Earth gravity because obviously the moon is within Earth's gravity. That's how it's orbiting. So the only real things that have left Earth's orbit and have reached escape velocity of anything that has basically gone outside yeah, well, orbited the sun essentially. Do you, yeah, do, do you know what I finally understood escape velocity in in terms of potential energy and kinetic energy. So it's basically when your kinetic kinetic energy is bigger than your potential energy at the infinity point. So the the moment I think there's the easier same. ways of thinking it think about it than that. Just think of it as basically your elliptical orbit intersects the point at which Earth's gravity becomes less significant than the sun's gravity. But, yeah, but I always thought, I was, I, I was thinking, at what point have you escaped? Because gravity acts across the entire universe. Obviously, it's very weak, but it... it but the but, sun overpowers so, it at no, a certain no, point. No, but it's not, it's not about that. It's like the, the, the rocket takes off from Earth and keeps going, and the Earth is slowing it down. It will slow it down forever, but 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 but, but the rocket is going. But it will inf it will take infinitesimal. It will it will take. It's, it's infinite the point at which the gravity time. from the sun. But that's to do with the balance between kinetic and potential energy. It's, it's the point at which the gravity from the sun 
is higher than the gravity yeah, you're but, getting from the yeah, Earth. Yeah, that, that, that would be essentially when you've achieved... Basically, any point that's past the Lagrange point between... Oh, I don't know about that. I'm going to have to check that. Because the Lagrange but... point is the point in between, it, like directly on the line of that. Yeah, that's it's kind of yeah. It's it. I like to think of the Lagrange point as there's two dips in two gravity wells, and the Lagrange point is the kind of just at the the, the top of the mountain before you go back down yeah, again. Yeah. And you can just about balance there, but of course, the moment you fall over down one side, you you start uh, flicking away. Depending on which Lagrange, but th- those th- those Lagrange points are quite easy to understand. It's the ones that are on the opposite side are, are, are harder to kind of get your head around. Yeah, but the um, yeah, well, so going, you keep going, a satellite in a Lagrange yeah. point is pretty hard as well because if you move even a centimeter one way, you've got so a- yeah, going to the sun, you can do it by getting into into an Earth in, into an Earth orbit, and because you're you're in orbit around the sun anyway. Because you're on, yeah. on Earth, you just you need then, to escape Earth. Yeah, you, you, if you fire your rockets retrograde, this it's makes prograde. your or, no. But if you do it retrograde, it makes it makes the uh, orbit more elliptical. Uh, and you, the, you and, burn prograde to get in order to get out of Earth's orbit. Oh, okay. Retrograde will just, as we've discussed earlier, will just make you go back to Earth. Uh, you want yeah, to go okay retrograde to the perigee. To the, Retrograde to the orbit around the around the around the sun. Oh, sorry, retrograde yeah. to the Earth's. Uh, orbit. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, you're, you're uh, in orbit yeah. around the sun. So you fire retrograde to that orbit, and that take that will then that will then create the ellipse the ellipse that goes down to the sun. But apparently, you can do it the other way. You can do it the other way, and it's more efficient. But it takes a lot longer because what you're doing is going much, 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 much higher. So way out of in the solar system, but then once you're really slow, you can do nudges that make a load of difference. So you can do it way more efficiently. However, that's not how it's done. Do you know how it's actually done to go into the sun? Uh, you get an orbit around the sun, then you just burn uh, apple apple helio. What was he? <laughs> Perry Perihelion. Perihelion. Yes, no, but but the, the the way that you do it most efficiently is to use gravity assist. Now, gravity. Oh. Is, gravity I mean, if assist, you're counting gravity assist, you can you can like go to anywhere you want with a hundred meter seconds. Yes, yes of, but so the gravity assist. That's my. This is my favorite um, rocket fallacy. So the yeah. gravity assist. Most people think it's because you go into the, the as you go towards say something like Jupiter, you obviously speed up towards Jupiter. And you think, wow, that's where you've got your speed from. That's where you've got your your faster velocity from. But of course, that can't be right because as you go away from Jupiter, it would be pulling yeah. you back, and it's so you'd the, slow down by the same amount. It's the spin, right? It's not the spin; it's the orbit. So Jupiter's in orbit around the sun, and as it's orbiting around the sun, basically you get into the same orbit that Jupiter's going. Oh. So, so you. In actual fact, the the, ma- the amazing thing about this, it's almost like you've collided with Jupiter with your spacecraft, and then you steal some of J- Jupiter's kinetic energy. So, in actual fact, if you were yeah, if you use say like um, Bepi Colombo did the other day, used Venus as a flyby as a gravity assist, Venus's um, Venus's orbit will have slightly shrunk. Because a tiny bit of its kinetic energy has been stolen by so you're, Becky you're actually, Columbo. You're not creating free energy. You're just stealing. Yeah, you're from just planets. stealing it from a planet. But the planet is so massive compared to the yeah. spacecraft, it's completely unnoticeable. But and, and here's the analogy, and I really like this analogy. Say I'm standing at the side of the road. If I throw a tennis ball 
in front of me in the same direction as the road and there's a car coming. <laughs> I throw it at 20 miles an hour. The car is going at 70 miles an hour. But if I'm the driver of the car, I, I see the tennis ball hit my car at 50 miles an hour. But then when it bounces off, it obviously bounces off at 50 miles an hour because it's an elastic collision. But I'm going at 70. So if, if, the, if the tennis ball has bounced off my car at 50, the tennis ball's now going 120 miles an hour. Yeah. So so it's gained double the dif- difference in speed. But your car's are slightly slowed as a result. Yeah, but your car is slightly slowed, but virtually negligible because the mass of the car is much more than a tennis ball. So so that's like a gravity assist. The tennis ball has got a gravity assist off my car in the same way that a spaceship gets it from a um, from a planet. Also, another way of thinking about it is if you get into orbit around a planet and you just you you just get into orbit and wait. You can get anywhere around the sun just by hitchhiking, of course, but it's a waste of energy to to circularize your orbit by burning retrograde. So you can just do, you know, yeah, the, cut the, the middleman. The weird thing, in a way, is that gravity assist must be happening all the time ac- across all the planets because we're all the planets are perturbing each other with gravity. So it must get incredibly complicated. Anytime I hear gravity assists, I always think of uh, the great Kerbal Space Program player, Strassenblitz, uh, <laughs> who is famous for being able to do like six gravity assists in a row without any correction burns or anything. Wow. Yeah, cr- crazy, crazy times. And the great thing about gravity assists, of, of course, as well, is that you can, you, you can double up with the Orbeth effect. So as you go in for your gravity assist... You burn your rocket engines at the periapsis of that particular m- m- maneuver. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's that's well cool. Um, here's my other rocket fallacy for you: Does suborbital spacecraft like the New Shepard? Do they go into orbit? Mm, well, uh, it depends what you mean by orbit. It's an orbit. Oh, it's an orbit you... that intersects the um, surface of the Earth. Yes, exactly. So it it does get into orbit. But, it gets into a massively elliptical orbit. But I guess you could say anything the center that fl- of mass. Yeah, yeah anything yeah. that flies goes in a yeah. Orbit. Every, every, if I throw a pen upwards, it's yeah. gone into orbit. Yeah, it's just a terrible orbit. It, it, it's gone into a terrible parallel. Another fantasy orbit. around that though is a lot of people think of like the edge of space. Like if something's suborbital, so it just hasn't got to space yeah. enough to get in orbit. Yeah, but you can go as high as you want as long as you don't reach escape velocity and still come back down. Yeah, it's not the edge of space. It's just you haven't got into orbit. And and how do you get into orbit? You you got to go sideways really fast. Yeah, and that's where the most of the meters a seconds are going. So why do rockets always point up when you see them launch? Well, you've got to get a little bit higher first because obviously the atmosphere is in the way. But if you if they, you could like wanted to go into orbit around a moon, for example, you could go to the highest mountain and then just go sideways directly from there and get into orbit. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, that's why those rail guns are quite good as well, aren't they, as well? Yeah. But, but so it's really, basically, you only go up because you want to get out of the atmosphere as quickly as possible because the atmosphere is a pain because it's so draggy. I mean, there are stories it's a about... a right drag. Yeah, yeah, it's a right drag, yeah. The, uh, the, the, there are stories about the first few rockets where people thought it, they were failing because they were rolling to the side. But, of course, that's actually by intention. And what? And why do they roll to the side? You go sideways. Ah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The roll. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, what's yeah, the, the famous line? Uh, roll program. Roll program. Roll program. But there's two roll programs. We have isn't a roll there? program. There's because the, the shuttle used to do a roll, but it wasn't. That, it that's wasn't. a roll on along the actual, you know, 
roll that is actually rolling instead of you know rolling sideways but, uh, yeah, yeah really yeah, yeah. it's yawing in, 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 if we want to get technical oh okay um um okay here's one that you put in there is no gravity on the space station yeah a lot of people think that once you're in space you don't have gravity like you know because you see videos of people on the international space station they're floating around and they are they are in some sense uh weightless in the sense that relative to them they feel weightless or at least their spacecraft. But of course, their spacecraft is also falling around them at the same time. So, Yeah, so really, actually, what's happening is they're falling. Yeah, they're falling. They're falling. and But forever. But the really great thing, yeah, <laughs> they're falling, but they keep missing the surface of the Earth because they're, as Newton pointed out, they're, they're, they're falling at the same rate that the Earth curves away from them. So, but the, but the amazing, but as Einstein points out, what's actually happening is they're going in a straight line. So this is my favourite thing. So the space station is going in a straight line in through space-time, and therefore there is no force, fictitious force, pushing them up. So as we're standing on the Earth, the reason why we feel the, the, the ground pushing us, accelerating us up... It's because it's accelerating It's because we, we actually want to go in a straight line, but we can't. <laughs> because we're on the earth. Yeah, we're stationary. So, it's the ground pushing us up, not us no, going down. We're, we're not stationary. We're 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 going through space, and we and the planet is rotating and everything yeah. else. But the reason why we we feel a force from the ground is because it's pushing us in a straight. But we're going in a because, straight line through we, time. No, we're not. That we go. No, we're going through a curved line through space time. Ah. Uh, so uh, this this is why you want to speak about general relativity because it actually makes it more intuitive. So the International Space Station is going in a straight line, as are the astronauts inside, and so they're feeling no force. So if I'm in a car and I start to go round a bend, I feel the seat of my car pushing me. Right? Because you want to go in a straight line. Because I want to go in a straight line. But your car doesn't. But the International Space Station is going in a straight line. That straight line is caused by the curvature of space-time as the mass of the planet bends space-time. And, and, and the International Space Station is going on a straight line through that curved space-time. I think where what, we're not on, where what, we're on the Earth. Aren't. I think one of the things that confuses this quite a lot is that there's, you often hear about microgravity, and even astronauts will say that they're under microgravity. But that kind of gives the wrong illusion to what actually it is. Maybe people think, oh, then it's like one percent gravity or point one percent gravity. It's actually something like seventy percent of what the gravity we feel on Earth is the gravity that affects mm. uh, people in the Inter International but Space Station. But they're falling. So you'd get exactly the same effect as the International Space Station from jumping from a high diving board. Yeah, if, if you jump off of a building and you, you have a cup with you, you can let go of that cup and ass assuming and pretend, no air resistance. And pretend you're Tim And pretend Pink. you're Tim Peake, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's probably how they faked it, you know. Yeah. They just uh, chucked loads uh, of astronauts off a building. Okay, here's, here's a couple of quick ones, right? And I love these ones. Um... Do things move slowly in low gravity like they do in the films? No. I mean, <laughs> they do fall slowly if you drop them, at least, you know, for certain heights. But uh, let's say, for example, you fire an arrow out of a bow, for example. Uh, a lot of people, at least some people, may think that the bow arrow goes slowly through the moon, right? Because it's like, I don't know, they've seen... So footage. we're standing on the surface of the moon, firing arrows at each yeah. other. And 
for some reason, yeah, when you see space move, it, you think that the arrow is going to go slower than normal. Yeah, I remember there was a, a Minecraft mod that added the moon and any, like, all the skeletons that shoot arrows, their arrows would go super slowly so you could dodge them. But of course, this isn't true. In fact, arrows would actually go, like, slightly quicker. Quite a bit quicker. But well, they would slow down not as much. Yeah, yeah. They, would yeah. Go, they would start the same The speed, initial velocity would be the same, but, but, the but they fun- would actually carry on going quicker. But because of yeah. obviously you don't have air resistance, the arrow can travel as, you know. And, and it would go a lot further as well. But it would spin because it doesn't, the feather feather at the back doesn't have an effect. So it would actually spin around and uh, may yeah. even be less effective. Oh uh, yeah, it'd be rubbish, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, unless you, you're firing like a, so, a ball, yeah, like yeah, a cannonball. So, so yeah, in that way, the... The atmosphere is too thin for its control surfaces. But it is... But, it, yeah, it wouldn't, so you, it wouldn't so travel you need, slowly. So you'd need RCS on an arrow. Yeah, you need yeah. RCS, or at least reaction wheels. <laughs> <laughs> which would, which definitely would make them more complicated. And then probably slower. <laughs> okay, what about moving an object in space? So if I've, if, if, if I've got a big fridge freezer and it's floating in front of me in the International Space Station... Is it easier to push or harder to push into place? Well, I mean, depends where, what direction you're trying to push it. If you're trying to push it upwards, or at least what re- upwards are relative to you on Earth, that's pretty hard because you're yeah. fighting against gravity. But sideways, it's, it's just as hard in space or in on Earth where because the mass is still there. You're still, you're still moving something, and that requires energy. And even worse is you can't anchor your feet on the floor yeah. using gravity. So when you friction. push something, you push yourself yeah. away. And so, yeah, uh, so much of spacewalking must be feel really counterintuitive because you're trying to push things that are just as hard to push, yet you can't really anchor yourself down on anything in, in, yeah. or use friction and all those kind of things. So everything just becomes Should have used bizarre. the canadarm. Yeah. So use the canadarm. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> that's why they added it. Right, I um um uh, that's it. That's have, have you got any other have, any other fallacies, George? That any I other forgot space to, fallacies that I forgot to mention? Uh, there's the space it. fallacy that space isn't cool, and it's just not true. It's not. It's not cool. Yeah. Uh, okay. What is it then? Cool. Oh, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why the oh, fallacy is that. that it, oh, okay. Yeah. It's cool. Surely it's really i find space it doesn't have temperature because temperature is the average movement of atoms but if there's no atoms in it it doesn't have temperature yeah i always think about that about you can stick your hand in an oven and as long as you don't touch the metal bits you you don't really feel as much heat as you do as when you touch the metal bits Because because of conduction. So if there's no atmosphere, then you don't feel the 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 burn, do you? Yeah, I mean there's there's air, but like if if you had a vacuum, well that's what I'm saying. Yeah, but in an oven, yeah, you've got a bit of air to. to you still have radiation the, though. You radiate. Yeah. Heat. So yeah. So yeah. If you put your hand under the grill, it's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or in the flame. But does that count as heat then? I guess. I mean, well, yes. It, it, it's heat, sort of but it's about, not There's nothing conducting it to you. Which is one of the which is one of the things about why it's so hard for satellites to control their temperature and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I suppose one of the spe- one space fallacy is that in, when if you're in space, you have to warm yourself up because there's nothing to heat you up. But actually, in actual fact, the main concern is to cool yourself down. That's why they have the massive radiators on the yeah. International Space Station to yeah, and it's and it's hard to do. I'm going to play an interview now. And, nice. Uh, yes. And actually, Who's that with? With Bianca Cefalo. Who's that? An Italian rocket scientist, space advocate, and consultant, and public speaker. 
and we had a, a very, very rambling conversation. So I'm going to stick it on now. Stick it. Ekutai. The Interplanetary Podcast. Putting the ace back into space. So, right, I'm here. Joined on the podcast by Bianca Cefalo. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt, for the invitation. It's uh, it's been a long time. We wanted to speak together, so I'm so glad we're doing this. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast because I know you've got a really exciting background, a, a quite a different background. So I think that's probably the best place to start. If you can, if you can tell us your journey, because you're 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 a very well established space engineer a rocket scientist let's say and, uh, and, yeah. and 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 it's really interesting to see how people get get there so yeah if you could tell us a little bit about your journey that'd be fantastic um yeah yeah so um what what i usually say is that and it, it may sound weird but i always say i'm an accidental rocket scientist which is funny because nobody will ever say oh i fell into rocket science by accident uh, but this is what kind of happened to me. Uh, so my story, my story starts in Naples, in the south of Italy, because I'm Italian. You may probably tell from my accent, uh, but um, I, I was only a child and no one in my family was an engineer or had anything to do with space or with science. Uh, but my dad had the garage. Uh, he would, and he was working, he's still working with spare parts. So let's say the automotive side of it. And since I was a child, I just loved the fact of, you know, seeing him so knowledgeable about every single part of a car, from a Ferrari to the, the more, you know, the Fiat, any kind of cars, he wouldn't know anything. And I was so fascinated by his knowledge and how he had fun. And but most of all, seeing a car and then one day and then the day after it was completely dismantled and how all the pieces would come together to make it work for me was was kind of magic. Um, so this is where I started kind of developing uh, an interest for, for the technology. Um, I didn't know there was a science behind I didn't know anything when I was a child. I just knew that I liked it. And I wanted to have fun when I was, you know, growing older as much as my dad was doing. So this is where it started with cars. And then being in Italy, obviously, Formula One was our Sunday ritual. During the Sunday lunch with the family, you sit down and you watch Ferrari. At the time, there was Schumacher. That was obviously, you know, the hero, the iconic pilot of Ferrari in Formula One. And so all these different elements came together. And uh, this is where I started really understanding where I wanted to work in the future, what I wanted to do. Still, it wasn't very clear to me because from one hand, I loved the technology. I loved the Formula One. I probably wanted to be one of those race truck engineers. At the same time, though, I loved art a lot. I loved everything that was artistic, that was philosophical, historical, whatever. So on the other hand, I also wanted to be a painter, a bit, a bit, a bit like Van Gogh. Clearly, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't without, going to without be without the involved. ear chopping off, presumably. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't want to get into that troubled kind of mind. So, but I loved a lot that kind of expression. Uh, I, I studying again the Italian art, uh, arts, and I loved Caravaggio. One of the things that I loved a lot when I was studying besides mathematics and physics that was kind of giving me the ground for what, how the technology of cars was working together was when I was studying Caravaggio, 
one of the stories that really uh, hit me was that when he was when he was very young and uh, he was an apprentice of one of those artists in the Renaissance, and uh, they used to give them canvas, let's say, with with frames. And the apprentice was just meant to paint within the frame that he was given. And what he would do was exactly the opposite. He would always go beyond the frame. He would never paint, you know, in those lines that were given to him. And the explanation for him was that art and expression has no boundaries. I love that. And I just love the story. And it was so applicable really philosophically to many things and especially to technology and then especially to how we as humanity do things how we integrate creativity into anything that we do either as an engineer or anything else so I love the other things plus my mom is a makeup artist so I would just see every the, the, the makeover that she would do were amazing you know the, all the colors and all it was that there was a lot of days together and still I didn't know how to put them how to, to merge these two interests that I had until a point where still watching Formula One I was watching the pre-development of a car and uh, there was um, there was a lot about aerodynamics and uh, wind panels. And when he simulates, when he makes simulations about aerodynamics and fluid dynamics, it's, it's colorful. So you are giving color and you are giving life to something that is all around us, but we actually don't see it. And when I saw that, I said, that's it. This is what I have to do. This is how I can merge colorful beauty and, uh, you know, some giving life to something that it's, we don't see to the technological edge of a car. So I said, okay, I want to I wanna learn aerodynamics and fluid dynamics. What do I do? How? Where do I go? I literally went on my university website, Federico Secondo Naples. I started to go through all the different engineering, mechanical, whatever. And then I found out that the only option I had was aerospace engineering. So I said, okay, I'm just going to go for it. And this is how I started moving into rocket science. <laughs> I, I love that. I love the fact that it's it's from that combination of art and, and engineering almost. As a musician, I totally relate to that Cavaggio going out of the out of the boundaries element of it. And I think, you know, one of my heroes is Brian Eno, and he talks about that all the time about really the art happens when you're pushing something further than it's designed to go. And I wonder if that's if something mm -hmm. similar happens in aerospace where you've you've got the design parameters of something and do you get innovation when you're pushing that further than it was ever really designed to go uh yeah actually this is uh, this is then the second step into my journey to space because uh, as i was saying so my my mind was fixated obsessed by the fact that i wanted to work on aerodynamics for cars and for most of my bachelor degree, I experimented on cars. I founded also the, the first formula student team in Naples, which is exactly a kind of, you know, smaller scale student has uh, Formula One. 
And um, and there I could actually had um, have a hands-on experience on aerodynamics, designing the car, piloting the car, whatever. So I was still fixated on that one. But then the more I was studying this kind of specific subject, the more I was understanding that it could have been applied not only to cars, but obviously to airplanes, and then to re-entry vehicles. Because obviously there is hair. So when I moved from the ground, let's say, aerodynamics to hypersonic aerodynamics, and this is where the whole exponential journey started, because exactly as you said, you can think that something could be just applied on the ground. But actually, the more you know about the subject, the more you understand that you can push those boundaries until the outer space. And this is what happened to me. This is what happened during the, my, my whole studies. And when I realized that what I actually loved, that the, the, the origin of my whole history into engineering could have been applied to space programs, I said, I'm not going anywhere else. I'm just going to the outer space. And, and I stayed there. So I, I literally stayed there. And the first project that I worked on was actually an interplanetary mission. It was a NASA JPL uh, Mars mission, which is now on Mars. And if I, because the Caravaggio thing stuck with me, if I didn't think that certain boundaries could be broken or weren't existing, I probably would have just said, okay, I'm just going to apply what I like here on Earth. But actually the same thing could have been applied on Mars. And uh, this is how I went into the outer space. And this is how the boundaries can, as, as an innovator now uh, to, to, to this date, this is where you see is, is still looking at solutions or at problems from a different angle and giving a solution that may be revolutionary, but actually what you are doing is just giving a different perspective to it. You're, you're combining disciplines that in 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 certain in certain people's minds they don't see as being compatible like you know people don't see scientists or engineers as being artists but i must admit i always do i mean you you'll see where we get to the end when i'm asking you about space music <laughs> <laughs> actually it it turns out that virtually all engineers and all scientists are also fascinated by music fascinated by art i mean like my hero richard feynman is a really good example of it but i guess yeah. it goes right back to da vinci doesn't it and that kind of idea mm -hmm. of of the renaissance person like a sort of artistic mindset do you think that artistic mindset has been really important for you i think it's been key for me uh and one thing that i'm that kind of disappoints me to date um, is that when we talk about science, especially engineering, the, the, the common uh, opinion is that engineers do stuff, fix stuff, build stuff. It's never about engineers create stuff because it's like the creativity is something that is completely disjointed from our work because it's very logical. But for me, it's been quite the opposite. It's been more the intuition rather than the logical thing, the, the logical mindset to come in. And this is where, uh, the, you know, you have a vision that somehow is different from the others. This is where you can, you really enjoy what you do because it's not, you're just not applying equations. You are giving a deeper meaning to them. For me, it's been key without this whole philosophical idea and the whole artistic 
let's say, kind of passion, uh, probably you would, I wouldn't have worked into engineering because I would have just seen it as something that is disjointed from the emotions, which is not true because it's all interconnected. The more you have the intuition about something, the more you can envision an idea, uh, a, a project, um, it's the same way an artist is envisioning something on a, on a blank canvas. You know, every project, every engineering project, every spaceship, a satellite, everything, at the very beginning, is just the white page, a bit like a canvas. So if you don't envision it creatively, if you don't look at the problem in a creative way that not only functions, but also as an intuition to it, I couldn't work into engineering, really. <laughs> I remember as a as a as a child myself, and I, and and I loved maths and I loved music, but there was a revelationary kind of thing where I'd be working really hard trying to solve a maths problem, and then you have a moment of inspiration and you solve it, and and that feeling is exactly the same as sitting down with a guitar and writing a song and finally coming up with that melody that works, and and it, you get the exact same feeling. So. That the creative the creative element of of engineering maths art music is all the same thing isn't it it's it's training you yep. to it's it's training your brain to to make that almost magical leap that where you can't really don't really know where it's from but it feels like yeah something's almost struck you from 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 outside rather than through pure thought if you see what i mean <laughs> I, I, I know it's very hard to understand but yeah yeah, yeah, it is. It is true. It is. It, it is exactly true. And uh, I was read. I've been reading the book by a Polish author who has a, who has a name that is really hard to say. So I, I'm, at the moment, I'm not saying. But he's the author of the flow. And after that book, is he, he wrote about psychology of creative, creative, the creativity and the psychology of innovation and art. And he was basically saying that behind the innovators and behind creative people, the process is pretty much the same. As much as Michelangelo has done his art, the same way maybe Nikola Tesla was thinking about his ideas. But the process behind is not just logical, there is way more to it. And also if you think about how the, mathem the, the mathematical models like the Fibonacci series and then the golden ratio and the golden spiral, that's not only maths, that's the basics of life. And for me, it's really, it's really impossible to disjoin the, the two things. Um, and at the same time, when um, I was watching the, uh, the return to Earth of the two astronauts from the Crew Dragon, and I, was actually, I posted actually something on all my socials about hypersonic aerodynamics. And everyone was clapping about the mission. Everyone was so happy. It was a historical moment. But I remember that behind that historical moment, I had a huge page of equations, the, the Hohn-Karman equations that are the basics of the fluid dynamics and fluid dynamic simulations. And I remember at the time, when you look at that page, it's just a series of Greek Things. It's, it looks like another language from another planet. And those equations, without those, you know, series of weird equations, we wouldn't have had the guys coming back safely to life, to, to, to Earth. 
So how can you disconnect such a historical moment with all the, you know, the aspects that it has from that mathematical model that was behind it? So this is how you see the bigger picture. This is how I see it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a beautiful thought, isn't it? If you went, if you took, went from that capsule entering the, and the fluid dynamics and then the maths and then go back even further, who came up with all those little bits of the maths and the differentials and everything else and keep going back and back and back and you go, yeah, yeah they're standing on the shoulders of hundreds of moments of creative genius to get to get there, isn't it, really? Uh, yeah. That, yeah, amazing. <laughs> yeah, amazing thought. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm almost gonna have to sit here in silence just for a bit while I I, I soak that one in. The um. So you you've got <laughs> you've got into space and you're designing and you're designing uh, spacecraft presumably in the way and and looking at fluid dynamics and things like that. So have you since kind of fallen in love with the the kind of space project? Let's let's call it in terms of beyond the engineering and beyond the maths and beyond the. Um, uh, um, beyond the just the pure majesty of that, the 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 kind of project of humans exploring the cosmos and our and our destiny there or or our place in in the cosmos. Yeah, it's um, it goes obviously beyond the fact that I love you know my my job and the engineering per se. Uh, it's that things that everybody who works. I think every human has a contribution to the evolution, irrespective of what they do. This is starting from this point. But talking about engineering and science, which have been, let's say, underrated for a long time, you give it for granted. Everything that we have now, the fact that we are in two different countries at the moment and we are having these products, the fact that everybody who works from home we take it for, for granted. But what I always say, if we didn't have telecommunication spacecraft, me, me, meaning if we didn't have space technology and space engineers and anyone that was contributing to it, this would have never been possible, not even feasible. And uh, this is what makes me so excited about the space technology and what I do is that we are actually shaping humanity in a way that wasn't possible probably 50, 100 years ago. And the, 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 the more we are moving towards the technology innovation and advancement, the more the gap that we had um, as, as humans from rural areas, urban areas, countries, the, the more we go on, the less we have this boundaries, these barriers are all knocked out. And this is what really makes me wake up every morning happy for what I do and happy and glad that so many other amazing women and men are doing the same because that small contribution that we think it doesn't make any difference is actually changing the humanity. It's changing the way we look at hurt. It's contributing to it in a way that wasn't possible and it's making possible, it's making, it's giving the possibility to humanity and the humankind to be an evolutionary species beyond hurt. We, we could possibly live in maybe in the next hundred, maybe in the next two, three centuries. We could be having interplanetary passports. 
for instance. And uh, now we are just thinking about passports from one country to the other one or different continents. Yeah. Next time, you know, probably the next generations, our grand, grand, grandchildren will have a passport to Mars. What do you think is more important in t- with space? You've outlined the kind of engineering element of space and the, and and what it means to modern to the modern world that that we couldn't have the modern world without without our space infrastructure. But you but you've, you've also alluded right there about also how space puts us in our place almost and and, and says you know the, we're being too colloquial or being too local about our thinking. Which do you think actually is more important in terms of what we're doing now to try and further our further space and and as space as a thing? What's more important that the, the sort of technology that comes from it, or or the way that humanity views itself? And um, I think they are connected. So the 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 first the very first thing is that thinking again uh, a bit like what I was saying before thinking that mathematics and beauty and art are disconnected is foolish thinking that we are disconnected from space is is is, is crazy because we wouldn't exist without space we are you know we are living on a rock which is you know in a cosmos of billions of galaxies so space is our business as much as uh, our business is eating and sleeping uh, so this is this is the basics so the, the the education about why space is important it's it, it's there it's really the basics of our life this is how we came to life in the first place and then thinking about the technology and the exploration that is possible with technology so when we are developing technologies that are working for space that can work into the outer space obviously we are learning lessons if that technology was working for the outer space was giving possibility to boost these people blast off into you know the unknown and then come back this means that we have the means we have the knowledge to make our technology on earth better we can improve our own infrastructures the way we live on earth because we've proven it worked for the outer space. So that's the main element. And then the same, the second element connected to the first two, so space is related to our life and technology, is that if you think about the age of exploration, so let's go back again to Columbus and all the other ones. So it is true that, you know, the history of that is controversial, and then the outcome of that is also controversial. However, without the the age of exploration at the time, me and you wouldn't be speaking today. Mm. It wouldn't have happened because we didn't know, you know, what was beyond our own local countries. Now, when we talk about the space exploration and the technology, it's pretty much the same. So we are talking about a new age of exploration in a bigger scale, in a multiplanetary scale. So what we are doing is trying to understand if there is any possibility for us to settle on something else that is not Earth. If there is even detection of life out there and somebody, something we could communicate with, it would not, it's not going to happen probably tomorrow, but maybe in a thousand years, that's possible. And the effect of this exploration of this curiosity is going to change the way people will live in a thousand years from now. So as much as those research of new countries 
has changed the way we live today and has a, a major history impact on our social and cultural um, uh, conditionings as well. Do we put too much emphasis on human exploration of space as opposed to scientific exploration of, of space in terms of is there is there a little bit about human ego, for example, that makes us want to to, to sort of go out into space in these kind of fleshy bags of viruses <laughs> rather than go out in rather than send out our intelligence in metal machines, for example? Um, I think that ego has always been probably the, <laughs> the first element, you know, that the, the first tribe. If you think about the moon landing in '69. That was about ego, honestly, because we were talking about the Cold War. So it was these two giants, the Soviet Union and the States, where they had to prove that they had the means to do something that was out of this world. So that was a bit powered up by ego. Clearly, that the effects and the technology advancement that came out of that were fantastic, and we are still talking about it, and we want to do it again. But there was a lot of ego. As much as I see sometimes and I, I sense the egocentric way of approaching the space exploration when we talk about colonialism, let's colonize another planet. And I, I did post something very recently on my socials and I was attacked from here and there because I said, <laughs> if, we, if we are still talking about colonizing another planet, it means that we actually didn't learn what colonialism has done to us in our history. So why don't we just talk about settlements? Why don't we just talk about, you know, for the sake of the argument, learning how to settle humanity and technology or whatever resources on another planet rather than just talking about this very self-centered way of capitalize, colonize, taking stuff from another place for our own Good. Of course, we are all going to benefit out of the space exploration, financially, socially, culturally, whatever. It's, it's an outcome. It's, it's a byproduct of what we do. But if that's the main reason that is driving us to do that, that's the, I think it's wrong. Yeah. I personally think it's wrong. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I, I I don't think you're alone in thinking it's wrong because you know I, I, it's it's like any any sci-fi that's ever written tends to 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 really show that as a as a bad thing, doesn't it? You know, from Star Trek to The Expanse to to all those kind of things that are popular with with the with the public and 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 the the imagination of people, which actually brings me round to a theme that I I that I know that you that you think about a lot, and that's bringing. Because one of the things I suppose that that when people say let's go colonize Mars or something like that is is from an inheritance of the people that are involved in an industry or the people involved in the narrative telling the narrative have inherited the language and it's and it comes from a sort of very narrow cultural perspective. So how do we broaden that? Because it's clearly a better thing, isn't it, to have you know more voices sending us in different direction because we know that from science we know from science that that the, at the moment like all the great discoveries in science that are happening now are from huge international collaboration from you know the chinese working with the americans working with the british working yeah. with the australians working with the italians working but you know the indians 
every everyone has to get involved in these huge um, scientific undertakings. And presumably, this. It, it, so how how do we encourage that to happen more, and how do we get that to to work properly? Yeah, and so it is true, and I always say that space and science in general is is the most international playground for all of us. Uh, because since uh, since I started working on space projects, I really had a team that where nobody was missing. That there were people from Iran, from Russia, from India, from Europe, from any part of Europe, from the states, uh, and there wasn't a difference there. It was just the team working together for the same goal that was bigger than ourselves. And in the moment, th- there is there is a thinking behind. So in the moment we are contributing to a project, thinking that there is a bigger goal that or, or a bigger purpose that we are serving. Uh, This is very much an individual mindset. So if I'm working on something because I'm serving a bigger purpose, I don't care who is around. Uh, Anybody could be around. I don't see the difference. That is, you know, I don't see how you look or what you say or where you are coming from or how you speak because we are all together for a bigger purpose. And this is what, you know, this kind of consciousness that should come around with science and engineering. But that's probably a broader uh, aspect to, <laughs> to, to explore. But at the same time, uh, the design of the, 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 let's talk about design of uh, astronaut capsules and everything. I had lots of conversation with friends who are space architects, for example, uh, and they are working a lot into the diversity. And when for diversity, we just not talk about gender, but also disability, inabilities, hyperabilities. And back then, so if it was just for engineers, they would design this capsule for the uh, for the astronauts without windows <laughs> because there wasn't the human factor to it. So now it is. Res- Perspective of the gender, that person inside that capsule will never see the earth from space because engineers were designing for the function of it. So removing, let's say again, that intuition, that emotion, the human factor out of it, which space architects or artists per se, they brought in, they brought a different view, a viewpoint. Why do you think you were sending out these people for this longer mission out of Earth into the unknown and they don't even see what's out there? And if we didn't have that person coming into NASA and giving that perspective, we wouldn't have had the overview effect and the whole romantic, the whole romantic and you know poetic side of it. No one would have ever seen the Earth from the outer space, and no one would have ever understood how small, you know, our uh, <laughs> petty arguments are when you are out there and you see the Earth as just one thing. So that's a ma- that's a major shift into perspective, and this was just because one single person was working with engineers and it was coming from a different background that was not engineering. And now, when, when we come to, to the modern days, uh, it's the same for any kind of genders, uh, for women coming in and saying, you know, so far you've just designed for astronauts that were male. We need space for women, so you need to change the size. We need a toilet that is unisex on the International Space Station because the way we go to the toilet is different from how men use the toilet. Yeah. And this small change 
is that just that small intervention of another perspective is changing massively the way we look at the design and the project itself. So really just even having one single person that is coming in with a different point of view, it happened the same to me uh, when I when I started working or I was working for Airbus and I just brought in a different perspective where all the teams were siloed. You know, all the different themes, even in the same place in Stevenage, they wouldn't work together for somehow they wouldn't communicate. And I just broke down these barriers of communication. And I said, if I want my team to work together in, onto the project, I have to communicate with them all at the same level, at their level. And they have to be aware that if something is going wrong, they have to communicate with me. I don't care if you belong to the materials, if you belong to the manufacturing, if you belong to whatever. We are all here at the same level. So really coming in with a different perspective and uh, and giving possibility to the other ones also to, to, to tell. So if, if I have a disability and uh, I want to work on this project or into the manufacturing and nobody has ever thought that we needed some support for the, a disabled person to be working on that thing, nothing will ever change. So it's really that tiny perspective that is going to make a domino effect on everything. It's even something that's a sort of proven effect, isn't it? That sort of diversity of thinking within teams improves the team. So yeah. it'd be ridiculous not to work towards that. But how going down to sort of grassroots level and something that, you know, obviously I'm interested in as well in terms of education, how do you inspire the next lot of people? Like you said, you might have a young girl that's sitting there and she only sees male engineers, for example, and therefore <laughs> might not be inspired. It might not even cross their mind that they can become an engineer when one thing exists and and it's not like you can change it. And it's not just obviously females. There's lots of other minorities or or, or just lack of diversity. How, how do we tackle it? What are the millions of ways that we can tackle it, I guess? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. There are millions of ways that, you know, they may work for somebody and not work for other ones. So I'm, I'm aware of that, that, you know, there is just one size fits all. And, uh, and this is what I, I usually tackle as well as, as a woman, as a, as a woman rocket scientist coming from a background that wasn't elitist at all. It wasn't rich. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't privileged. Uh, because this is another thing. So we, we should be just having, like what we are doing now, having a very candid conversation about the fact that whatever you want to achieve, and if we are talking about space, of course, is a complex industry. There is a lot of competition, and uh, it's, it's not just you know from one day to another that you work into the space industry, but this is for everything in life. Everything you want to achieve it just doesn't happen from one day to another one. And there will be lots of obstacles socially, culturally, financially. Um, that what I, I love is what, what I love to say to the girls that obviously when they, they talk to me and they see me, when I, you know, I'm a STEM ambassador, so I go to school in the UK. And when the girls, especially girls' school, when they know that a rocket scientist is coming in, none of them thinks that's me. So when I go into the room and then they are asking around their teacher, so where is the rocket scientist? <laughs> this is, it's, it's, it's crazy, but it doesn't surprise me because um, 
the visibility of all the, the women and other genders that are doing the job of the usual male, I would say the usual male doesn't sound correct, but you know, the, the male dominance of this industry, probably they are not very visible. And they are not very, very visible because not all of the women or non-binary or any other genders out there doing giving a great contribution to science and engineering, they are able to, to come, to, to be out there, to, to, to speak up because there is the judgment. Because we are still holding on to stereotypes. I am myself being attacked many times because I use the socials a lot, like Instagram, Facebook, any other socials, because this is how you get to the younger generations. If you're giving them something that they can latch on, as much as they can latch on an artist, a musician, or an actress, if you give them a model that works for them, is very relatable, and at the same time is talking about something that is fascinating, you are attracting them. Because let's let's be honest, you know, and this is not only for girls, it's also for boys. The new generations are way smarter than we were. They have way more things that we didn't have probably before, and they lose interest. So they need to be very, very attached to a model that is relatable. They need to understand that there is a purpose in what they are doing, not just because they have to pay their bills. They need to understand what's the lifestyle that they can have, how they can live their social life, and so on and so forth forth. And this has to be communicated, not only because we are engineers and this is what we do, but there is a whole 360 degrees of a life of a scientist. And this has to be visible. So I am attacked many times because I use the socials in a way that I think it's relatable to my audience. And this could be different from an audience of another science communicator. But the fact that I am a woman coming from the South and also being a woman that doesn't really fit into the stereotype of the engineer or the rocket scientist. It's, it's a way that I have to communicate. So I'm attacked because I use pictures of me being attractive and I speak about science. <laughs> and I'm still attacked today where I shouldn't post a certain picture or a certain thing or I shouldn't say that thing that is very confrontational because that has nothing to do with science. Actually, it has everything to do with science. And this is why many other minorities don't want to come on and don't want to speak out because you are judging them for the way they look, the way they speak, maybe their accent or the, 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 the problems and the issues that they are bringing out of their background, of their childhood, of their, their whatever. And so I think there is a lack of authenticity and this judgmental way of looking at people that communicate about science in a way that is different. And this is what is highly beating lots of people to come in because then otherwise they feel judged. They feel like they have to fit in. They feel like they don't can be really loud or speaking their voice or they have to, if, if you were a woman, um, you have to cover up that feminine side of you because that's disrespectful to science. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. When you were speaking that, it just sounds to me like, like the, the people that whinge are, are joyless somehow. It's somehow like, can't, can't we, can't we just be a little yeah. bit less serious about it and, and actually say, as a human being, we should be enjoying life and, and, and enjoying your subject is what's going to make you good at it. 
Exactly. And this is what I've, I, I've heard as a feedback from many girls and boys exactly when I go into schools where, you know, being a STEM ambassador, of course, anybody could be a STEM ambassador from any kind of age, any kind of background. But most of those were telling me we were enjoying those sessions because anybody would come in, possibly they had the age of our parents or our grandparents even. They would just shuffle around the cards of this is where I work. This is how you can apply. This is what I do. This is my nine to five kind of thing. And they were not, they said we were bored like that was boring. We didn't see anything that, you know, was attracting to us. Then they said, when you came in, then first of all, we didn't expect you because who the hell expects you to be a rocket scientist? <laughs> and, and then we realized that, you know, you have a sense of passion, you travel, you, you tell stories, you do things that are beyond the just coming in and saying to us, oh, you can apply this and become an engineer and work nine to five and the rest of your life is over. And that's, that's really what, 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 it, what is missing. It's truly the playful side of it, which we all have. And I'm not saying that, you know, girls or boys necessarily have to come into science because I understand that's just not for everybody. Uh, but the ones that do want to come into science, they have to understand that there are, there are people out there any kind of people that are actually enjoying what they do. They love speaking about what they do and they could be doing exactly the same. Doesn't mean that their life is over and they will just have one single job for the rest of their life. There is a bigger purpose to it. And this is what sometimes lacks. There is this dull, you know, atmosphere around the science, which is very wrong, by the way, because science is beautiful. You know, anytime I talk about engineering, even now, I love talking about engineering because for me, it's just it's not a job. It's not a label. It's, it's an entity yeah. <laughs> that exists and allows us to, to make big changes for humanity. This is what needs to be communicated rather than just saying, apply there, study for the rest of your life and then have that job. Not everybody also fits into a corporate job. You can just be an entrepreneur and have a path that is completely uncommon to anybody else and still doing science. This is another aspect that is not very told. When you have someone boring come in, what they'll normally say is, yeah, as an engineer, you need to do this. You need to learn uh, this, this equation here. You need to learn a Fourier transform. It's like, yeah, that's boring, but you could tell me some really exciting stuff that would make me go, do you know what? I'm, I'm, willing, to, I'm willing to go through the tedious learning the things that I'm going to have to learn because this the, the subject itself is so exciting. Like I mean, I've just had a conversation this morning with uh, <laughs> with an author of a book on neutron stars and just like mm -hmm. how amazing are neutron stars and you think well how could you not want to become an astrophysicist after after, after <laughs> learning about neutron stars? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's exactly that. And um Again, we are stuck um, also when, you know, when you read all the statistics about uh, the gender gap and it's there, it's obviously there and uh, we have a long way to go. Uh, but the idea of just uh, ticking a box out of getting more women into the industry because we need to have 50-50 equality, that doesn't help either. Because you may want to get more women into the industry, which means you are getting women who are unmotivated and you are not giving them the ground to grow 
because actually what only you, the only thing you wanted as a company or an industry or a corporation is just to tick a box and say, oh, we are gender parity. We have gender parity. And that's very wrong because then you get them in and you actually don't have a culture into that company that's an, an environment that is allowing them to grow in a way that is different from, you know, men or any other gender. And then they leave the industry and they go doing something else. So it's even the retention of that talent, which which is which is critical. And this is the way where, you know, kids, when they are very young, they are all attracted to space or to technology because they, they play with those toys that, you know, they dream about stuff. They dream about the moon and the stars. There is this whole curiosity, this very naive way of looking at things. And then the more you grow, the more it gets boring because somehow you are conditioned by the things that you see around you. So you lose that playful side. And then at some point when you are in your 15, so you were a teenager, you've lost completely interest and you are just bombarded by what the media is telling you, what the media is telling you, how you look from the Kardashians and all this this, this other stuff that, you know... Um, it's not very helpful because they see they are having a great life. This is what I want to have. I want to be that, you know, I want to be IP. I want to be a celebrity because this is very cool. But actually being an engineer is absolutely cool. Like when I say I'm a rocket scientist, I'm super proud. Yeah. I couldn't say anything different <laughs> I because I, I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> it is. It's the coolest thing ever. But I will, I will say one thing about just the phrase rocket scientist for me, I think is an interesting one because like you said, you could be at school and, and there'll be a bunch of girls and a bunch of boys all sitting there. They love space. Oh, I love space. Oh, I love rockets. And then you ask them, oh, do you want to be a rocket scientist? And I suspect that a lot of them, in their mind, think of themselves as not talented enough to be one. Mm -hmm. Because in their mind, that they've heard, it's not rocket science. This this is something you have to be the clever kid at school to be able to do. And I and yeah. I I really profoundly disagree with that 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 whole thing that I, I think we're all running on the same hardware and software that, that if you want to do something, you should be encouraged. If you love it, that's really pretty much all you need to be able to do that subject. If you, unless you're very unlucky. Exactly. I, I agree a hundred percent. And I always give this example, for instance, my brother who has a completely different mind from mine, uh, he was studying criminal law. And I would look at these books. So you think, okay, you're studying rocket science and aerospace engineering and all these weird equations. What he's doing is going through Italian rules and regulations. How difficult could that be? For me, that was the most difficult thing ever because I hated, I hated the whole idea of sitting there memorizing stuff. And I could have never done something like that. So it's not about being, you know, having a brain which is so talented. It's really about what you like. And the other, the other way for my brother, he could memorize things like, you know, in a heartbeat. And he will look at my equations and will go like, oh my God, what's that? I could never do something like that. So it's, it's, it's not about being smarter than any other one at all. It's just about really being aware of what you like and if what you like is mathematics and physics then this is what you have to do it's not for me for me really it, 
studying Italian was difficult because it was boring. <laughs> it was just a bunch of boring stuff. Yeah. And I didn't want to do it, but that doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's easy or, or it's harder. It's just about what you like. So again, and I remember many girls coming into Airbus and when, when you have the summer, the summer, uh, school break and they come in and they have this kind of shadow work and they were shadowing me and other 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 project managers and uh, we would uh, with one of them we sat during um we had lunch together and she was 17 16 i think and so i started to, to talk to her and asking her so what do you think how do you like it you know why, why you're here and she said oh i, I think you know what it, it's all great and uh, it's amazing, but um, and I want to study physics, but I'm not going to do it anymore because I think this is too difficult and I feel very out of place. And I was like, no, <laughs> why do you feel out of place? Of course you feel out of place, you know, like you were 17 and I'm over 30. Do you think that when I was 17, I knew what to do? <laughs> Obviously not. Um, so she felt that that environment wasn't wasn't for her because she, the way she saw it was complex, even though she liked it, and also because of course she didn't see many women there. Uh, so I had I had to sit down with her for for a long while, and then after when she left, she said, "Okay, you made me find you, you made me change my mind. I'm going to go into physics." And I said, "Oh my god, thank God." <laughs> yeah well maybe maybe that's it i mean if 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 you're doing it one person at a time maybe maybe that maybe that is it isn't it, it, it that that people people's response to these sort of things are so individualistic aren't they and just being able to spend that time and and talk to people and and, and just help them build that passion i mean right from the get-go your story your story is 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 i think is a really classic one where You've fallen in love with 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 a subject by the fact that you're messing around in your in your dad's garage with fiddling with stuff, and you think that that's probably a, there, there was a couple of hours in your life that was the window for opening up that kind of thought process and and set the tone for almost your entire life. And you yeah. think, I wonder how many of those opportunities you have. With 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 young people, where where it's like, how how do you get how do you get it so that 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 they in those in those times in their life they have the most fruitful encounters with with things that are positive for their for their future. Uh, it's it's difficult. It's <laughs> it's very difficult. I must say that the the entire lockdown uh, has had his. I said benefits because especially since the very beginning, I managed now the socials are probably the, the most important thing to be on these days. And uh, LinkedIn or Instagram are actually source for probably the best business events, partnership, mentorship platform or any of, of the sort and um, when when this whole thing started then I came across some profiles of other women uh, on LinkedIn and they were working for space the space for women network and all of these so we joined forces and we started doing um, space for women show for example and it started off from two, three of us, and now there is a huge community around it. When what we are trying to do is exactly to to address very complex 
subjects related to space, because again, space industry means not only engineering, but many other things. And we're trying to address all of them. And we, we try to follow mentees as well. So again, at the beginning of the lockdown, for some reason, uh, I came across this, this post of one of my connections and she was talking about a girl that wanted to come into space, but she didn't have any background. And the, if there was anybody in the space industry that wanted to follow this girl. So I picked that message up and I became her mentor. And uh, from that point, when you magically match with these people, you really open up a lot of opportunities for them, but also for yourself as, as a person. I grew a lot when I was mentoring her one-on-one because I was understanding what actually the new generations need. And it's not what I needed. It's not even what I needed when I was younger. It's completely different because the battles and struggles that they are having are way bigger probably than the ones I had in the past. And uh, it is difficult to be able to touch everyone's life in such a depth. It's very difficult, unless you do this as, as you know, for a living. Mm. It's very, very difficult. But just the fact that you know, you, you know people in the industry and someone is asking you for, for help, as you know, LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook, and you manage to pick that message up and you can tell them, look, I can't really help you now, uh, but I maybe know somebody that can do that for you. It's really like opening up doors. It's, you know, uh, having that nurturing conversation with them and saying, okay, I, I know that you need this. I can't be there for you, but maybe somebody can. And it's just helping each other, growing the network, growing the possibilities, opening opening up doors that probably they didn't even know they, they could go into just because they didn't know the people. This is how, at least from my side and how it's, you know, the group of women and men that I know, this is how we are helping each other as each other again in the network. And we are also trying to help girls and boys to come into this network and go out there and have fun. You know, you want to do this. Okay, fine. I'm going to connect you with that person. And that person is going to connect you with the other person. And this is how they grow in and also how they keep engaged because they think, okay, so I want to have this project or I want to learn about this. And people are actually responsive. So I'm actually into these. So I'm having a hands-on experience. So they, they feel involved. And they then, you don't have to follow even them anymore because they're like, okay, I know what to do. And if I don't know, I'll just go back to that person and ask a question. It's this networking experience, which is extremely important. And uh, not being afraid of asking or approaching senior people in the industry because they are going to respond. You know, out of 100 messages that you send out, one is going to respond. And that person can actually change your life. So, again, there is still long, a long way to go because we are not addressing everybody's problems yet. We don't even know how to address them. I myself catch myself thinking, you know, I'm the most feminist on, in the world. And I myself, for some reason, at times use words or sentences or, you know, statements that are wrong or come across in a wrong way. So we are all learning. We are all learning uh, the way to address the, these problems and help people in, in a way that is authentic. 
but uh, it's it's a lot of work for for me as well to be honest sometimes I, i really do understand that i don't understand the pain of somebody else because i wasn't in their shoes i i've never had that that struggle and uh, it's difficult to help them when you've not been there yeah do, uh, do you know what that, that's really nice to hear a a positive social media story i mean on the whole mm-hmm. i think that social media is very has been you know for, uh, recently I've, I've i've i'm very down on it because it's 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 been so corrosive in society and 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 the way that society's gone but but that I love I love that aspect of 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 using social media to 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 mentor people that you don't even know and 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 getting something out of it. I mean yeah as a as a lecturer I can say that you know after doing 25 years in the music industry that 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 my best moments have actually been helping young people get into the into the industry and 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 feeling a part of their journey and and actually being able mm-hmm. to help and yeah you learn a lot about yourself and you actually learn a lot about your subject while doing it as well so which which I, which, I, which I which I love yeah I, I i that's a really do you know what i might actually I, i'm going to start looking into that into that into that social media mentoring thing myself i think that sounds really amazing i think that's a really that's a that's a really cool place yeah, it, it is. In in the moment you start, so before before actually being uh, becoming or being seen as a science communicator, because it's not really a label that you put on yourself. You just start speaking about a subject, and you realize you are a communicator about that subject. Mm. So this is how it happened to me with space. Before doing that, obviously, we all have Facebook or Instagram for our own personal stories, um, and that was I wasn't really into that. I, I dropped out of Facebook. I never used Instagram because I thought, I mean, well, who, why should I post my personal stuff for no reason? Uh, that it doesn't have a purpose. It doesn't really serve anybody. And then when I realized, okay, I can use them not only to connect with people that are on my same you know, frequency and I can have an honest conversation about the subject and grow my own business bubble, but I can use my own story to, to teach something, to, to give a lesson. And so I'm, my whole mindset as well switched from the moment of seeing social medias as, oh, look at that person, look at that beautiful holiday, look at that beautiful couple, <laughs> and all these sorts yeah. of things, to where I'm using it to to express what I think, how I feel, and also giving a kind of snapshot of my own life and of what what I came across and how I overcome certain problems. And uh, this is where everything changed because this is where people started to come, you know, being responsive and engaging with that social media post, for example, because they resonated to that message. And this is where the social media is coming in in a, in a very very useful because you can then communicate with one on one just video or one show or one thing that I do one talk. I may be able to answer questions coming from hundreds of people, and they can all find value in what I say or not. It really depends. But I can reach out to so many more people that I could possibly do if I wasn't using. Probably the social channels. 
I'm going to ask you some a, a couple of frivolous questions now to to, to wrap mm-hmm. this up because <laughs> we've yeah. we've <laughs> we have taught we've we've taught for a long time. I've loved it. We always ask this, these two questions. One is, have you got someone that you would bring back from the past that is a hero of yours, just so that they could see what 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 you were doing or what what's what what was happening in space or anything? Who would you bring back from the past? I will bring back, you know, that Mr. Caravaggio that was, you know, that really inspired me. <laughs> I would really like to have a chat with him or Leonardo da Vinci. You know, it's, 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 it's just very, very cool to have the conversation with them. I, I would possibly, you know, if, if I could, I would leave, you know, maybe a couple of days back in the 20s after, you know, the golden age, with all those people and women that were there fighting for their rights, uh, you know, rep- being against the whole system, and actually they made it. That, that's something that I would love to do. And then I would love to, to bring back some of those philosophers or artists that I've been studying, just to say, you know, thanks to what you said when you were a kid, <laughs> you know, I learned something about my life. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, well, I'm, I'm gonna. Cavaggio is a great. That's a great one. That is. We, we've not had that one before. And and uh, and are you a music fan? Do you have a Do you have a piece of Do you have a piece of music that you associate with space or associate with your with your progression through life that that's means something special that we can add to our space song list? That is from Aretha Franklin. I'm if I'm not wrong, and is this bitter hurt? Right. Okay. Um, yeah, I think and really that one was it for me somehow also because I've um, I've heard another version another cover of that one that was in a in a in a sci-fi movie about space and this bitter hearth somehow connects me to space because it's that kind of sweet and uh, bittersweet way of. Uh, relating to hurt mm-hmm. and a way to, to find solutions to hurt that may mean probably we have to look somewhere else. I don't know. There is this kind of bittersweet thing about this bitter hurt, which is really cool. Plus, you know, Aretha Franklin is, well, how, how can you not like her? <laughs> no, no, Aretha Franklin is, yeah, that, that, that's as, almost as, as good as it could possibly get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that one it's uh, it's definitely you know top of my playlist. <laughs> Excellent. Well, well, it's go it's going on it's going on the playlist. <laughs> Thanks for the conversation. I absolutely loved it. As I said, you know, if you make me talk about space, I could talk forever <laughs> about everything related to it. <laughs> the interplanetary podcast is alive. There you go, George. That was my interview the other day, uh, George. What do people have to do if they want to uh, um, go visit the go visit the website? Where should they go? I think they need to go to www.interplanetary.org.uk. Whoa, yes, bang on. And uh, you could also go to patreon.com forward slash interplanetary if you want to, to become even more involved in the journey. Or you could open up your favourite browser and just search the Interplanetary Podcast. Provided it's not Bing, and then you should delete it. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a good way of... That's a very good way of finding us. It's it's very, very easy. Um, Thank you very much, George, for for doing this podcast. It's been been great. Um, You've you've badgered me a long time. George wants to inherit the podcast, so at one point he he gets the show. That's, you know, 
over my dead and body. And all of our six uh, listeners will all, leave. All six listeners will then go, yeah, I only I didn't only really liked it when Jamie was I didn't, on. I don't even like space. <laughs> I, <just> wanna... <laughs> I don't even really like space. Just that Jamie told the odd gag. Yeah. Right. Bye-bye, uh... <laughs> everyone. Goodbye. Bye-bye, Smart Cat.